good to see everybody here today on this nice little frigid morning here. Uh, If you would, please pull out your sermon outline so you can follow along. We're going to be talking today about the power to see. And if you would, read in Luke chapter 18, verse 35 through 43 with me. It's a really interesting passage here, and a miracle is performed. Listen to what happens here in this passage. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard the crowd going by, he asked what was happening. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. So here he is, this blind man. He's blind, he's begging, he's kind of in a tough position. The fact that he's not, he struggles with blindness, he has the issue of blindness, but he's actually begging, which means he is you know, starving and destitute. Um, it says this, He called out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. So here he is. This crowd is coming. Imagine a crowd is wa- a crowd of people is walking into the city of Jericho. And there's a blind man who's probably used to being there begging for people going in and out of the city, asking for money, uh, just trying to get by. Now this big crowd's coming. He's calling out to Jesus. It says, those who, who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more. So not only was he calling out for Jesus, he had this big crowd. There's probably a lot of noise going on. So he's basically screaming out to be heard. And he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. In verse 40, he says, Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, I want to see, he replied. You know, imagine that if God asked you, what do you want me to do for you? I think we could all come up with a couple of different answers. You remember the movie Aladdin where they had, what was it, three wishes for the genie? And literally you could do like, you know, everybody says, well, if I had a genie, I'd ask for an infinite amount of wishes or something like that. Um, so basically this guy has one thing he wants to change in his life. And he says, Lord, I want to see. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. It's kind of interesting. I came across an interesting article that parallels this passage. And I wanted to share with you, and it was, keep in mind it was written in 1993, so I'm sure there's been some advancements in the world of optometry. But I thought it was really interesting to hear about just people who are blind and given cornea transplants. Uh, I did a little checking, and as of today, a full eye transplant is not possible at this point. There has not been success in that type of endeavor. But what uh, doctors can do is they can transplant a cornea, which can take basically a very poor vision and make it real. You can have a drastic improvement in your ability to see. And listen to what I want to share with you an article. It's about a physicist that I hadn't heard of up until this point. But it says this, it says in his brilliant new book, now keep in mind this is in 1993, in his brilliant new book, Catching the Light, quantum physicist Arthur Zajunk writes of what he describes as the entwined history of light and mind, correctly described by one admirer as the two ultimate metaphors of a human spirit. For our purposes, his initial chapter is most helpful. From both the animal and human studies, we know that there are critical developmental windows in the first years of life. Sensory and motor skills are formed, and if this early opportunity is lost, 
trying to play catch-up is hugely frustrating and mostly unsuccessful. Professor Zajunk writes of studies which investigated recovery from congenital blindness thanks to cornea transplants. People who had been blind from birth would suddenly have functional use of their eyes. Nevertheless, success was rare. Referring to one young boy, the world does not appear to the patient as filled with the gifts of intelligible light, color, and shape upon awakening from surgery. Zajunk observes, light and eyes were not enough to grant the patient sight. The light of day beckoned, but no light of mind replied within the boy's anxious open eyes. Zajunk quotes from a study by Dr. Moreau who observed that while surgery gave the patient the power to see, the employment of this power, which as a whole constitutes the act of seeing, still has to be acquired from the beginning, Dr. Moreau concludes. To give back sight to a congenitally blind person is more the work of an educator than a surgeon. To which Zajunk adds, the sober truth remains that vision requires far more than a functional physical organ. Without an inner light, without a formative visual imagination, we are blind, he explains. That inner light, the light of the mind, must flow into and marry with the light of nature to bring forth a world. So all that to say, what he's basically saying is we've had some success in science transplanting corneas that have helped improve vision for certain people. Basically what he's saying is, if you take a person who's blind and you just all of a sudden give them sight, what has happened is they've missed those formative years on how to process light and sight and what they're seeing. You know, right now we have a soon-to-be five-month-old child, and you know, you see those little play mats kids have with stuff dangling over their heads. They lay on their back, and what's going on in his life now is his ability to see and his ability to function within that sight is getting better and better as time goes on. So now he's at the point where he lays back, something's dangling, and he kind of he'll reach for it. You know, at first it's one thing to be able to see the object, but now he's learning how to function within the gift of sight he has. And to be honest, I've read through these passages before of Jesus healing people, giving sight to the blind, but I never really thought about, like, if this person's been blind their whole life, what do they, you know, what, does that mean they can just know how to run and jump over stuff all of a sudden? Part of me, one, I mean, we don't know the end of the story. I mean, maybe there's a kind of a learning curve that he had to go through to learn how to, you know, like walk without, you know, going like this or using a cane. I mean, there's a whole process that this individual may have gone through after that. But one of the things I wanted to talk about, a couple of points that were kind of interesting. So a miracle has occurred. You know, for me, believing in miracles has never been a struggle in my life. It's just something that I think the fact that we're even here, you know, that whole the expression, I think, therefore, I am. The fact that I am here and thinking and processing things and communicating and having relationships with people, uh, that to me is a miracle in and of itself. And believing that Jesus just suddenly had a, a medical miracle, well, for me, that's small potatoes compared to how I see the very fact that we're even here uh, to begin with. And so, you know, I know some people struggle with this whole process of miracles. You know, Jesus walking on water, breaking the laws of physics and nature to do these certain miracles. There's actually a, oh, an amazing book by C.S. Lewis called Miracles in which he addresses the very you know, controversy or the difficulty people have believing in God because how can these miracles occur? And he has just an incredible intellectual. He has a lot of 
profound answers to these tough questions. So if you're ever dealing with a tough question, there's probably a Christian who's come along. At least, at least I can say they're a lot smarter than I am who give amazing answers that make a lot of sense. But the main point I wanted to harp on today is point number one is that God seeks those who seek, seek Him. So this guy... He went above and beyond. The crowd was like, hush up, be quiet. They were trying to silence him. There was probably a lot of noise. He went above and beyond to get to God. He wanted to have a connection with God. And I thought it was interesting that there was the crowd that was saying, they rebuked him and was telling him to be quiet. And I was kind of thinking in my own life how maybe in some ways I can be part of that be quiet crowd. You know, maybe someone was enthusiastic about something going on in their life. Maybe God is working in maybe subtle ways in uh, somebody's life. I know, you know, a couple of weeks ago we talked about a little bit how, you know, how Kanye West has, has this spiritual transformation. And he's very open about it. His music is reflecting this transformation. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's actually married to Kim Kardashian. They're both famous in their own ways. Prior, Kanye was in the music business. Uh, Kim Kardashian, they had a reality TV show. Um, she's very, she has like millions upon millions of people who follow her on Instagram. Uh, she's very into like beauty, cosmetics, clothing. I think she's into all that stuff. Kind of a fashion mogul, if you will. And one of the things I saw working with youth group is, believe it or not, you know, for someone like me, or, you know, maybe some of you here, you're kind of like, whatever, you know, nobody's paying attention to her. One of the things I can tell you working with youth people, uh, the youth, is that they look up to these people. Like some of the young girls, like they look up to these kind of, you know, Insta models, if you will. They're looking to them they're for influence. They're influenced by their fashion. They're influenced by how they take their selfies. You see this whole uh, duck lip movement going on. I mean, these young girls think that's hot, you know, hot to trot because they see that on some of these celebrities. And I'll be honest, I see some of that stuff going on. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You know, you you hear, you ever been cynical sometimes where a celebrity or somebody famous has come to faith in Christ and they're going to be this great Christian and everybody's kind of like, whatever. I think there's a lot of that going on with Kanye. But I came across an interesting article about Kim Kardashian. And the title of the article was Kim Kardashian Resolves to Dress More Modestly in the New Year. So, you know, I don't, I can't say I follow her closely, but, you know, she's kind of into like the swimsuit stuff. I hear, you know, I've never looked at that garbage. I'm sure every guy in here had just, I, you know, I don't pay attention to that stuff, right? Uh, but anyway, there's an interesting article that says Kim Kardashian resolves to dress more modestly in the new year. Listen to this little article. It says Kim Kardashian is already working on her New Year's resolutions. The entertainment superstar known for her scantily clad outfits has decided to show less skin, according to Faithwire. Her decision comes month, months after her husband, rapper Kanye West, made headlines with his conversion to Christianity and subsequent release of his successful gospel album, Jesus is King. The West has been vocal with his wife over her outfits. He, still, he has still given her freedom to dress however she chooses. And listen to what Kim Kardashian has quoted as saying. He says, I don't know if it's a fact, if it's the fact that my husband has voiced that sometimes too sexy is just overkill and he's just not comfortable with that, but I have kind of had this awakening myself. 
I realized I could not even scroll through Instagram in front of my kids without full nudity coming up on my feed pretty much all the time. While the public eye has been fixed on West's transformation, Kim has been experiencing her own spiritual journey. Earlier this year, she traveled to her family's homeland of Armenia to be baptized in one of the oldest known churches in the world built in 303 A.D. She participated in a traditional service alongside her four children. Her new commitment was also spurred on by her pioneering criminal justice reform campaign. In the last several years, Kim has helped free over 17 people from prison who are serving long sentences for low-level crimes like first-time drug offenses, according to NBC. She has made regular appearances at the White House to lobby for prisoners, which I think is a beautiful thing that she's doing. Uh, listen to what she's quoted as saying, though, about lobbying at the White House. She says, I also did, talking about dressing modestly, she said, I also did think, like, okay, I'm here in the White House, and then the next day I was posting, like, a crazy bikini selfie, and I was thinking, I hope they don't see this. I have to go back there next week. So she's starting to get a little bit of a conscience going on about, you know, how she's been doing things. And the article ends with her quoted as saying, I think I'm evolving to where I don't feel the need to want to keep up. I guess I just don't care as much anymore to want to take tons of photos in a thong bikini. Anyway, I thought this article was interesting. So you hear about her husband's kind of transformation. He's been very vocal, very public, talking about wanting to do gospel music at this point in his career. But what struck me about this article, and obviously I don't know these individuals. You only get small glimpses of who they really are in certain little articles. But I thought it was significant to see that maybe God's working in her life. Maybe God is kind of showing her some things that maybe, you know, correcting something that maybe she was kind of okay with before, but now she's starting to see maybe this isn't the best way to do things. I mean, we'll, we'll, I guess we'll, the world will see whether or not she does make changes, and maybe they'll be subtle. But what is neat about how God works in our lives is often in very subtle ways. Have you ever noticed that? The good news about God is when you come to faith in Him, He doesn't expect you to be like this finished product all of a sudden. And what happens is over time, He shows you kind of one little step at a time to get you where He wants you to be. And I hope that what uh, God is doing in Kanye's life, I hope He does in Kim's life as well, starts revealing Himself to them both more and more. They get to know Him, and I think they could be a tremendous influence for the kingdom of God. But I thought it was really neat to see. You know, obviously men and women have totally different uh, ways of seeing things at times. And I thought it was really neat to see how God is working in her life. Saying, wait a minute, I don't have to, you know, I don't have to show everything. And I can cover up a little bit and be a little bit more modest. And maybe the way I'm doing things in my life, uh, maybe they can improve a little bit. And I want you to be thinking about in your life, if you're really seeking hard after God, what are some ways that maybe you could... Where where is God tugging on your heartstrings about? Because I really do believe that God is always speaking to us. He's always showing us an area of our life to improve on. Um, The good thing about God is He does want us to change probably a lot. There's a lot more in my life I know that God is wanting to change. There's a lot more in my life still that God is wanting to transform. And there's actually a a scripture that talks about, to search me, God, and know me. And I think that's a bold prayer to pray is when you're saying, all right, God, you know me, you see me, show me where I need to change. Show me 
where I need to improve. Show me what area of my life I need to make some positive changes in my life. And it kind of goes into a sub-point is only God can help us. See, I know there was a time in my life where I wasn't living for Christ at all in college. Some of y'all probably know my story mostly, more or less by now. How many of y'all have ever heard of a place called Ybor City? Anybody ever heard of Ybor City? It's in Tampa, Florida. It's kind of like their Bourbon Street, if you will. It's kind of like, the. I don't know if it's quite as wild. I've never been to New Orleans myself, but I've heard, you know, Bourbon Street's kind of notorious for what goes on there. It's kind of like their party strip. I don't know if it's quite as provocative as maybe like a Bourbon Street. You know, there's a lot of bars and restaurants and stuff going on there. Well, in 2000, I think two it is, um, I was in college, and so South Carolina, I was at the University of South Carolina. A bunch of friends of mine and I, we all traveled down and stayed at hotels because we were going to the bowl game. South Carolina was in the Outback Bowl, which takes place in Tampa, Florida. And sure enough, we were at Ybor City on New Year's Eve, and we weren't there for Bible study, and I'll just leave it. <laughs> and so we were at this bar in Ybor City, and I still remember the name of the bar. I don't even know if it's still there. It's called Bar Tampa. I don't know who decided to go there. I was in a fraternity at the time, so basically everybody I knew was, was transported to Tampa, Florida, and everybody somehow coordinated to meet up at this Bar Tampa. I don't know who makes these decisions. I wasn't in there. I just went where everybody else was going, kind of a deal. So here I was on New Year's Eve, and, you know, everybody's drinking. I was, I was reading the Bible. You know, everybody else is drinking. Now I'm just kidding. I didn't have my Bible. Uh, but anyway, so what was going on? Everybody's just partying, drinking, dance floor. And at this point in my life, I was, I'll be honest, I was afraid of drugs, more or less, uh, without going into the hard stuff, you know. And so I got to a point, and this was my junior year of college, where some of the guys, some of my friends, some of my closest buddies, started getting a little bit beyond drinking, if you will. And we're doing drugs like ecstasy, ecstasy and stuff like that. And, you know, it's kind of really hush-hush. You know, no one was going to brand, but you knew it was going on, and it was very common. Um, and I know that was, I think it was kind of my, I don't know if it was my gender, it's probably going on, all this stuff's going on way before, but... You know, my generation was kind of, they take pills, like prescription pills, while they were drinking. I mean, I know that still goes on now. It probably was going on when y'all were, I don't know. People were finding ways to party. You know, that's basically what was going on. And I'll be honest, at this point in my life, I was at the point where I was like, you know, I'll, I drink, but I'm not, I don't want to go this far with it. I don't want to, I was, I was nervous about it. I guess the Just Say No campaign kind of settled in, you know, in my childhood. I don't know what it was. But I was afraid to go further than that. And so here I was. I was at this point in my life where I was living apart from God, living in ways that I knew growing up I did not need to be living this way. And I got to the point where I was just absolutely miserable. It was like I kept living this way, and I didn't know what else to do, and I didn't know how else to live because that's what all my friends are doing, so that's what I'm going to do. I didn't want to do it anymore, and I really had this struggle going on, and there were struggles going on before this point, but I wanted to share with you, this particular night, New Year's Eve in 2001-2002, it got to the point, so here I was, I was at this bar in Tampa, Florida, South Carolina's going to have the bowl game the next day, 
I was surrounded by tons of people who knew my name. Like, you know, hey Blair, how you doing? All that stuff going on. Just everybody's having a good time, right? And so I was at this point, somewhere that night, I don't know how it happened, I don't know what exactly happened, but I was absolutely miserable. I was there, I was partaking, but it was almost like at some point I became detached from my surroundings, and I was just absolutely like, what? It was kind of like that question just somehow started forming inside of me. I was like, what in the world am I doing here? What in the world? I had that feeling. I couldn't pinpoint it. Now looking back, I can kind of theologically say, oh, you started kind of getting disgruntled with your sin and you know all that stuff. And God was doing a work in you through the Holy Spirit. And I believe those are true now, but I didn't know that at the time. And here I was, and I can honestly say, to this point in my life, from what I can remember, this is one of the loneliest, if not the loneliest night of my entire life. I don't know how it happened. I was surrounded by people who knew my name. I mean, dozens of people who knew my name. I mean, this, this place is much bigger than the room we're in now, and it was just packed with people, and I knew at least half the people in there. Tons of people. And it was just one of the loneliest nights of my entire life. And listen to this quote from G.K. Chesterton. He says this. He said, Meaninglessness does not come from being weary of pain. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. Think about that. That's one of the most profound things I've ever heard. Meaninglessness comes from being weary of pleasure. Think about that. Here I was pursuing what I wanted to do, right? I was doing things my way, right? You know the song, I did it my way? Well, I had been doing it my way, doing what Blair wanted to do. And I got to this point, and obviously at that point I didn't quite, I couldn't pinpoint it, now I can. I had discovered what meaningless felt like this. I, I felt a meaningless, that, that meaningless from pursuing my own and set in upon me. Sure enough, over the next couple months after that, I go back to school. We start spring semester. I started going to church a little bit more and more and more. Next thing you know, I'm surrendering my life to Christ. And it was a, literally a year and a half from that night, okay, that I was in Ybor City feeling that meaninglessness that I was in seminary a year and a half later. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy. Looking back, it's like crazy. How did that happen? God doesn't always work that quickly. You know, I think He works as quickly as you're willing to listen in that sense. But God doesn't always just zap you. Know, it's kind of like... I mean, I was born again, according to the script. I was, I know that. Uh, but not everybody gets, you know, changed and then called into ministry and just this rapid change in their life. But what happened that night was amazing because I started to realize, like, this is not it. This is not it. And so talking about this guy who is physically blind, there's actually another scenario where Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees. And listen to this. This is in John 9, verses 40 through 41. It says, Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you are blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And he was basically referring to a spiritual blindness. Can you imagine being there at that time and this 
kind of this preacher comes along and he's calling out the people that you revered, these religious leaders, basically telling them they're spiritually blind. And looking back on my life, I'm able to see clearly like how blind I was spiritually at that point in my life. You know the old song, Amazing Grace, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Twas blind, but now I see. I mean, that's why that... I mean, obviously it's just a beautiful song, but just... One of the things I love about that song is just there's so much rich theology there. I mean, that person not only knew God, but he knew Scripture. And was just, I mean, it's so that song that you've heard over and over again throughout your life, one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known Christian song, the theology, if you want a theology lesson, read that song. I mean, it is absolutely beautiful. And he talks about when we've been there 10,000 years, you know, shining bright like the sun. I'm kind of misquoting a little bit. It, it, we will we'll have no less days to sing God's praise than when we first began, and just goes into the theology of heaven, and it's just absolutely beautiful. But and I can't wait to see that other side of that song because I know it's true. But that twas blind, but now I see. I was absolutely blind, and the truth of the matter, I didn't even realize I was blind. I didn't realize I was blind. When you come to faith in Christ. It's a matter of giving that spiritual sight. But it's also like that article I shared. You kind of have to learn. God's given you revelation and showing you His will, showing you more of Himself. But you also have to start walking into that light He shows you, kind of like when that cornea transplant takes place. You have to kind of learn to walk within the light He's showing you, which can be tough. I mean, we're imperfect beings. We have a hard time uh, obeying God, listening to God's voice. It can be tough at times. But look at the scripture in Proverbs 4, verse 23. It says this. It says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. That is uh, applicable in so many areas of our life, in our relationships, and our friendships, how we handle money, all these things. We have to be very careful in our lives. One of the things I appreciated about Billy Graham is one of the things... This is kind of a paraphrase of conversation. He was asked, like, you know, how did you stay? Because he was one of the few that, one of those rising star evangelists that didn't have some controversy, right? You know, some of those TV preachers, particularly in the 80s, got caught up in either financial or uh, relational scandals of some sort. And one of the things that Billy Graham was asked is, like, basically, how did you, you know, stay the course, I guess? And one of the things he answered was basically said, I, I, I walked scared. And that doesn't mean you have to walk around like afraid, oh, God's going to put, you know, all that stuff like that. But basically what he was saying is the Bible talks about a fear of the Lord, having a fear of the Lord. That means you recognize, number one, it could happen to me. You know, when I read about some scandal that a pastor, like, I, it could happen to me. It, I, I'm, I'm not that good of a person on my own, to be perfectly honest with you. And if any pastor, anybody thinks otherwise, these types of things can happen if your heart gets astray and you stop focusing on God. It's it's scary to where the mind can go if it's not under the umbrella of God's Word, spending time in His Word every day. But listen to the story. How many of you all have ever heard of a former Red Sox player named Manny Ramirez? Does that ring a bell? Manny Ramirez? One of the greatest home run hitters of all time. I think he's in the top 15. He has over 500 home runs. Just an unbelievable slugger. He had a lifetime average of a 
312 batting average, which is anything over 300 at the major league level is phenomenal. Um, you're one of the best hitters in the league if you have 300 and up, especially for your entire career. But did you know that uh, Manny Ramirez is now a seminary student? How many of y'all know that that doesn't get the headlines? All his home runs got the headlines, maybe his off-the-field behavior. I wanted to share with you an article that, this is surprising to me, I just heard about this. It's called, the title of the article is, Former Red Sox All-Star Manny Ramirez Finds God and Rolls in Seminary. Listen to, listen to the story, it's a neat story. Former Major League Baseball player Manny Ramirez is best known as one of the stars of the 2004 Red Sox team that broke the curse of the Bambino by winning the World Series and for his on and off the field antics, which led to the phrase, Manny being Manny. So here he was, he's this great hitter, great player. He's also kind of a little bit of a diva. That's basically what, what I'm gathering. It says, now Ramirez sees the damage he created through many of his selfish actions, has apologized to Boston fans and revealed that he came to faith in Jesus and has enrolled in seminary to study the Bible. Ramirez's comments appeared in a Boston Globe article about his being honored by the Sports Museum in Boston at its annual tradition event. Ramirez said he was sorry for selfishly forcing the Red Sox to trade him to the Dodgers just before the trade deadline in 2008. He also apologized for taking performance-enhancing drugs and for a 2008 incident in which he pushed 64-year-old traveling secretary Jack McCormick to the ground over an issue with tickets when the club played the Astros in Houston. He told the Boston Globe that he apologized to McCormick for pushing him down soon after the conflict in 2008. In explaining his faith in the article, he said he found God and that what I'm doing now, this is a quote, he says, what I'm doing now, I preach. That's what I do. Go into hospitals just to preach and teach the Bible, the people the Bible. He also explained that he enrolled in seminary because I just wanted to learn. I've been doing that for five years now. It hasn't been easy. It's something great. Ramirez who currently sits 15th on the all-time home run list with 555. If you don't keep up with baseball, that's a ton of home runs. That's elite company. Anything over 500, you're one of the greatest sluggers of all time. He says, but while he is thankful for the experience, he knows it does not matter in light of eternity. Isn't that powerful? I mean, you know, I, I was you know, I was, I was a baseball player. Growing up. I was into baseball, that stuff. I mean, that's kind of... Slugger, everybody dreams of being. I mean, this guy was unbelievable. He said this. He says, when God calls, you should humble yourself and you can see. Like, I hit all those home runs and it doesn't mean anything. It's something that I really cannot explain. Describing himself as a Reformed Baptist, he has devoted himself to growing in the faith with the same vigor he brought to the baseball diamond. He said, I'm growing. It takes time. It's like playing baseball. If you want to be the best, you've got to go hit every day. If you want to get to know God, you have to have a relationship with Him. Manny lives in Miami with his wife, Juliana. They have raised three boys, one of whom has graduated from college. The other two are still teenagers. In addition to his preaching in hospitals, Ramirez is listed as a board member with Planted Ministry, whose mission is to work for a spiritual awakening across Latin America. Who knew about Manny Ramirez? 
uh, unbelievable baseball player, one of the ones who got in that performance-enhancing drug push, essentially cheating a little bit to catch that edge, not cheating a little bit, cheating a lot, to help him hit more and more home runs, to get those bigger and bigger contracts. He, I mean, he was even involved in pushing down a guy much older than him. Obviously, he's a big, strong athlete. And you imagine just shoving down this 64-year-old man, creating this incident over just something petty. And he now recognizes, wow, I was doing things wrong. And not to mention the fact that what I was working for in my life, that's great and all. But in light of eternity, Christ is all that matters. And I loved hearing that story about somebody you know, that I've heard of, you know, I knew was a great baseball player. And just to see what he's doing, he's now allowing his life to be used. Okay, so he lived a life he wasn't proud of. He's come to faith in Christ. He realizes I'm still a work in progress, but he says, you know what, God, I want you to use me regardless of what's going on. And that's what Jesus did with this blind man. He took somebody who was willing, somebody who wanted, who was seeking hard after him, and now that blind man's story, you may say, well, the story's over, right? You don't hear about the blind man again. Now his story of this blind man's faith has been told to millions and millions of people for the last hundreds, several dozen centuries have gone since this incident happened, or actually 20 centuries since this incident happened. Uh, it's just amazing how his life was, you, you think the story's over, but his life and his faith in Christ at this moment was being used to help us this day. Allow God to use you where you're at. God receives you as you are. Continue to pursue after Him and walk in the light He's given you for right now. Let's pray as we go into a time of response. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the opportunity to be here this Sunday and for Mr. Sermet allowing us to use his facility and his generosity toward us. I pray that this message would hit home with each and every one of us, that we would have that faith of the blind man and say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to go after you no matter what, no matter what imperfections I have, no matter what problems I face, I want to pursue you at all costs. I want to be used by you. Lord, I just pray over each of us individually in this church. I pray that we would be a light, continue to be a light here in this community. That we would be a place where not only that those who attend regularly can come to know you better, come to know your truth better, come to know the scriptures better, but we would pray that you would bring new people who need to be built up in you as well. That we would be a vessel of light into this community and all we do. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.